Welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. In this week's study guide, I'm going to be exploring romantic writer and bro to last study guide subject, William Wordsworth, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. In school, if you learned about Coleridge, you probably learned about him as that ancient mariner guy. However, his study guide has everything you could possibly want in the life of an 18th century poet. A lot of opium, an absurd pseudonym, and the inability to choose a single female muse. Let's begin. Samuel Taylor Coleridge is born October 21st, 1772, in the town of Ottery St. Mary in Devon, England. He is the youngest of 10 children, and both of his parents are over the age of 40 when he was born, which is quite the achievement in 2019 and is even more exciting in 1772. His parents are Anne Bowden and John Coleridge. His father is a school teacher who had gone to Sydney Sussex College at Cambridge, where he had studied classics. After graduating from Sydney Sussex, John got married and had four children, all of whom were daughters, but then his wife died, so he married Anne Bowden and had ten children with her, and Samuel is the youngest of those ten children. By the time Samuel is born, his father is the vicar in Ottery, St. Mary, as well as the headmaster of the local school. Growing up, Samuel is going to have a very good relationship with his father, but a pretty bad one with his mother. From an early age, he gets into a habit of running away and wandering in the local wilderness to anger his mother. He also sees himself as a total outsider. He's much younger than the rest of his siblings, except for his brother Francis and sister Nancy. He's pretty close to Nancy, but really competitive with Francis in a classic case of sibling rivalry. On top of this, most of his siblings call him Sam, not Samuel, which Samuel Coleridge absolutely hates, so I'm going to do my best to call him Samuel and not Sam in this episode, and from an early age, instead of playing sports and other games with his siblings, Samuel Coleridge goes off to read by himself. He's a pretty isolated child, and to make him even more isolated, he's pretty sickly. He suffers his first major illness at the age of seven when he gets sick with the flu. Coleridge is never going to be in the best of health throughout his life. When Samuel is eight, his father dies in 1781. With the death of John Coleridge, the Coleridge family loses most of their income and has to move. With his father's death, Samuel is the only boy left at home because the rest of his brothers are old enough to either be in school, university, or in the Navy. Samuel's older brother, George, ends up taking control of young Samuel's life and making his decisions for him. With the help of a family friend, George helps Samuel get in to Christ's Hospital, a charity school for poor gentry who don't have money but show 
academic promise. Once Samuel is accepted into Christ's hospital, he spends most of his time studying so he can be ready to attend the school. Samuel starts going to Christ's hospital in 1782. During his time at the school, he's mostly going to focus on Latin because that's what you do when you're a boy going to an all-boys school in the 1700s who needs things like math, science, or history. All you need is Latin. Ask my Latin teacher from the age of 11 to about 15, and he also starts writing poetry. Unlike his later friend, William Wordsworth, who utterly loves his time at boarding school, Samuel Coleridge does not have a great time at school. Very early on, he gets a bad reputation due to his bad health and the fact that he doesn't dress well because no matter what age we're in, preteen boys are the worst. Samuel is very homesick, he has a hard time fitting in with the other boys, and the conditions don't exactly help things. It turns out Christ's Hospital doesn't exactly have the best living conditions, and Samuel keeps getting sick. He's going to get rheumatic fever and eye infections, and to treat both of these, the school is going to give him opium starting in 1790, because that's exactly what you want to give a teenage boy, a super addictive drug, and guess what? Samuel Coolridge is going to end up getting addicted to opium. Samuel isn't going to make that many friends, during his time at Christ Hospital, basically, he only makes two friends. Charles Lamb, who will be a friend for basically the rest of his life, and whose sister, Mary Lamb, will be the subject of our next tangent cast, and a young man named Tom Evans. During his breaks at Christ Hospital, Samuel Coleridge will visit the Evans home in London, and while he's at the Evans home, he will meet Tom's sister, Mary, and fall head over heels in love with her. Coleridge will be visiting the Evans home, but he won't be visiting his own home. In fact, he only goes home three times during his entire tenure at Christ's Hospital. Even though he's not seeing his family all that often, he writes a lot of letters to his older siblings. And these letters to his older brothers, specifically a letter to his older brother Luke, is where we see some of his first poems. One of his earliest poems from 1789 is about the fall of the Bastille, because remember, 1789 is when the French Revolution is kicking off, and that's going to be an event that basically inspires every single romantic writer everywhere. The next year, in 1790, Coolridge is going to write his first longer poem, Monody on the Death of Chatterton, which is about a poet named Thomas Chatterton who wrote this really impressive forgery and then killed himself at the age of 17. Monody is in the style of a Miltonian elegy, and Coleridge is going to tinker with it throughout his life. The next year, in 1791, Coleridge's two closest siblings, Francis and Nancy, die. The death of these two siblings make Coleridge feel even more isolated, if such a thing is possible. However, he can't spend all of his time moping about, because the same year he gets a scholarship to study at Jesus College at Cambridge. And that's what he does. Because after all, if he didn't go off to Cambridge, he would have wasted all of his time at Christ's Hospital. 
the scholarship he gets for Cambridge is £100 a year, which sounds really nice, but according to Coleridge, it isn't enough to live on, and £100 a year in 1791 money is about $15,000 a year in 2019, so yeah, I'm with Coleridge on this. He quickly goes into debt, although he lies and tells his family that he's saving money and swirling it away and being a good, responsible student. However, he's not being a good, responsible student. Instead of studying, he's spending his money on wine and opium, because even at this young age, Coleridge is addicted to opium thanks to the questionable health practices of Christ, of Christ Hospital. He also has started spending money on prostitutes, a practice that he feels really guilty over because one, no offense to Samuel Coleridge, but as a youth, he wasn't exactly the most attractive looking man, and two, he's still obsessed with Mary Evans, and he feels bad for profaning her memory on prostitutes. Even though he's not exactly studying, Coleridge is still pretty involved in things during his time at Cambridge. He's at the center of a group of politically radical students. He's involved in the trial of this man, William Friend, who's an anti-government radical. He's speaking out about the French Revolution. Remember, Coleridge is a political radical. He really supports the revolutionaries and their aims. And he also speaks out in favor of getting rid of the Test Acts, which are a series of English laws from the time of Charles II of England, which limit the ability for non-English for non-Anglican English people to go to university or hold office. And by the late 1700s, early 1800s, they're pretty archaic, but they're still on the books, and William Pitt the Younger has no wish to get rid of them. Samuel Coleridge is also going to start writing poetry during his time at Cambridge, because hey, what else is a young college student to do? During his first year at Cambridge, he wins a prize for a poem that he wrote that was speaking out against the slave trade, and he's going to keep writing poems. One of his other early Cambridge poems is all about how he's expecting to gain recognition and fame for his writing, which, okay, Samuel, that's very teenage college student of you. He's also going to start reading aloud his poems, and at the reading of one of his poems, lying on an autumnal evening, a young student named Christopher Wordsworth hears him and is like, oh dang, this poem's really good. I better tell my big brother, William Wordsworth, all about this poem, and he does. And this is really the first time that William Wordsworth and Samuel Coleridge's lives intersect. So, the poetry thing is going pretty well for Samuel, but that's basically the only thing going well in his life, because he's falling deeper and deeper in debt, and because he's not exactly studying, he no longer is receiving scholarships, and pretty soon it's clear that Samuel Coleridge is not going to get a fellowship at Cambridge, and he will not be a priest, and he's just going to be a total failure and let his family down. He briefly tries some other money-making schemes, like attempting to publish some of his poems, but these go nowhere. So, by the fall of 1793, Coleridge drops out of Cambridge because of his debt, which, 
Why not? What student hasn't thought about doing that? Once he is a college dropout, Coleridge needs something to do. He needs some way of making money. And because we're at that point in the French Revolution where things are getting a little bloodthirsty and England may or may not be intervening in a military capacity, Samuel Taylor Coleridge makes the genius decision to join the army. In December 1793, he signs up as a volunteer to be a private for the Light Dragoons. This quickly turns out to be a mistake. Members of the Light Dragoons have to ride on horses a lot, and as it turns out, Coleridge cannot ride a horse to save his life. Luckily for Coleridge, no one knows that he can't ride a horse, and part of this is because he signed he signed up for the army under the fabulous pseudonym Silas Tompkin Cumberbatch. But pretty soon, everyone realizes he is not a great soldier. So Coleridge, thinking very smartly, decides to become a nurse instead. But once again, he realizes pretty quickly he is not cut out to be a nurse either. And by the start of 1794, he's really regretting the whole joining the army thing. But in the 1790s, one cannot just walk away from the British army. If you did that, you could be like executed. So Samuel swallows his pride and writes a letter to his brother George asking for help. Eventually, with George's help, Samuel gets discharged from the army under the cause of insanity by which I mean his brothers pay the British army quite a large sum of money to let him leave. So, now we're in the spring of 1794. Samuel is no longer a member of the army. He is free to do whatever he wants. So what does he do? He goes back to Cambridge and starts taking classes yet again. During a break from Cambridge, he decides to go on a walking tour through Wales with his friend Joseph Hux, and the two cover about 500 miles. And as a side note, this is one of the things about the late 1790s that I just don't understand. Why was everyone so excited to go on 100-mile-long walking tours? Why not just sit inside and read a good book? Your muscle you're much less likely to die of some like weird infected blister if you do that. Once he's wrapped up this casual walking tour, Coleridge swings by Oxford on his way back to Cambridge, and while he's in Oxford, he meets a student, Robert Southey. The two quickly hit it off, because as it turns out, Southey also has poetic ambitions and also has radical political beliefs. Both of them feel like rebels and outsiders and feel like kindred spirits. And as a side note, Robert Southey will eventually become a really prominent English romantic poet. He will be England's poet laureate right before William Wordsworth. And no, I won't be doing an episode about Robert Southey because I just don't like his poetry that much. So yeah, not really going to be covering him outside of this podcast. Pretty quickly, Southie and Coleridge decide that they want to start an experimental society, utopian type thing, 
of their own, because what else are two college-educated bros in the 1790s supposed to do if not create their own utopian society? They decide that this utopian society is going to be based in America. Men and women are going to be allowed to join, and men and women will work together in total equality. It's going to be great. And it's going to have, quite possibly, the stupidest name of any utopian society that I've ever read about. They decide to call it Pantocracy. By the summer of 1795, Southie and Coleridge are trying to spread Pantocracy. The ideas of Pantocracy are based all around the French Revolution, which is really great and high-minded. I mean, who doesn't like the idea of equality under the law? But remember, by 1795, the French Revolution is deep into the reign of terror, so a lot of people maybe don't want to be associated with a political ideology that involves the guillotine. As a result, they're not exactly successful at getting the average Joe and Jane on the street to sign up to join Pantocracy. However, they do meet two groups of people who will be very important in Samuel Coleridge's later life. First, Coleridge and Southey meet Joseph Cottle, a man who will be Coleridge's publisher for most of his life, and then they meet the Fricker family. The Fricker family has five daughters, all five of whom are really into this whole utopian society thing because their parents raised them to be free thinkers. How exciting. Coleridge really quickly hits it off with one of the Fricker daughters, Sarah Fricker, and the two start a relationship, even though they are basically polar opposites in terms of personality, but then again, opposites do attract, and even though Coleridge is still pretty in love with Mary Evans, even though Mary Evans is engaged and later married to another man. Robert Southey ends up marrying one of Sarah's sisters, Edith Fricker, so he's really pushing for Sarah and Samuel to get together. By the end of 1795, it's pretty clear that Pantocracy is going to fail. They basically haven't converted anyone. Southie and Coleridge attempt to buy some land in America, but that entire enterprise goes down the drain, and as a result, we see tensions growing between Coleridge and Southie. In the, mid of these, in the middle of these tensions, Coleridge's ex-flame, Mary Evans, reaches out to Coleridge and is like, hey, maybe you should cool it on the whole utopian French Revolution society in the United States. And suddenly, Coleridge is torn between the two women he's obsessed with, Mary, who represents his childhood and less radical ideas, and Sarah, who is single and agrees with him in terms of radicalism. As he's trying to decide what to do, he resumes his friendship with his schoolhood chum, Charles Lamb, because both have similar political views, and he also befriends political radical William Godwin, the father of Mary Shelley. Coleridge and Southie give Pantocracy one more try. Once again, it fails, and the tensions between the two reach a high point. As all this is going on, Coleridge is still writing 
poems. He goes on this long hike, which gives the initial inspiration for the poem that will eventually become Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. He also writes this long poem about the French Revolution, which never gets published because it's too politically extreme, but it does show Courage's talent and some hints of his later romantic writings and the ideas around nature and leaving corrupt civilization that he'll return to in later poems. By October 1795, things have calmed down a bit. Southie is married to Edith Fricker and Courage decides to marry Sarah Fricker. He is pretty happy with married life at first. After all, being married is much calmer than running around trying to start a YouTube a utopian commune with Robert Southie. The two will never be as close as they were right out of college, but their relationship does start mending. And even though Coleridge is never going to try to start another commune, he's still going to be pretty involved in radical politics. He starts giving lectures in order to raise money to start a newspaper called The Watchman. And these lectures are really really popular. A bunch of leading politicians like Charles James Fox attend these lectures, and people are super excited by the idea of the Watchman. However, the Watchman only runs for about two months because not enough people subscribe to it, and the Watchman's failure ends up pushing Coleridge into debt. The only way he avoids debtor's prison is because his friends bail him out and donate money to him. The next year, Coleridge manages to publish a poetry collection, Poems on Various Subjects. This poetry collection is mostly full of his early works that are very focused on deep and personal emotions. These early works got a lot of positive attention, especially his more Milton-inspired pieces. Poems on various subjects gets a really positive review by his schoolhood friend, Charles Lamb, and a young poet named William Wordsworth reads poems on various subjects and really enjoys the poems, especially the poem Religious Musings. Wordsworth starts writing to Coleridge after the collection comes out, and the two start a correspondence. The same year that he publishes the collection, Coleridge starts making plans to make money, because now he's married, hopefully he and his wife will have children, he needs like a steady income so he doesn't go into debt yet again. Coleridge has two plans. Either he will go to Germany and teach, or he will become a pastor. Both of these options, however, do require some capital to set up. Instead of taking newspaper jobs, which he was offered, Coleridge decides he will pay for these two options by setting up a school of his own, even though he is in no way qualified to start a school, because, you know, that's the Samuel Coleridge way of doing things. Luckily for Coleridge and his wife, the son of a prominent banking family, Charles Lloyd, has been reading Coleridge's work and is super into his ideas. He writes to Coleridge and is like, hey, do you want to be my tutor? And Coleridge is all, maybe, I'll get back to you. Right around the time that Lloyd reaches out to Coleridge, Sarah gives birth to Coleridge's first son, Hartley, 
And as soon as his son is born, Samuel Coleridge is like, oh shit, I actually like do need a way of making money that is more reliable than opening a school that may or may not work. So he gives up his teaching plans, gets back to Charles Lloyd and is like, yeah, sure, I'll be your private tutor. Let's move to the country. You can be my tenant and I'll teach you things in exchange for money. So, in 1797, the Coolridge family, with Charles Lloyd in tow, moves to the town of Nether Stowey. In Somerset, they live in a pretty small college that is being paid for by Lloyd's father. At this point in time, Coolridge is like, yeah, I'm just going to write, be Lloyd's tutor, and take a ton of opium. I'm not really going to go for that conventional writer-journalist life anymore. In addition to teaching Lloyd, Coleridge is mostly working on the semi-Gothic play called Osorio. But all that is going to change because on June 5th, 1797, Coleridge is going to meet William and Dorothy Wordsworth. Coleridge had known that the Wordsworths were living fairly close to him. He vaguely knew William Wordsworth. The two had sort of lived in the same vague literary circles. He had known Wordsworth's little brother, Christopher. It wasn't like the two were total strangers. Remember, they had been writing to each other. So on June 5th, Samuel Coleridge walks over to the Wordsworth's cottage, and when he sees that they're in, he jumps over the fence and runs over to talk to them. And it works. The three start this really deep, intense friendship. And for the rest of the summer of 1797, William and Dorothy Wordsworth and Samuel Coleridge walk around talking about writing, politics, and life. These conversations will lead to Coleridge and Wordsworth writing the poems that will become lyrical ballads. While Coleridge is the younger of the two writers, he was the more dominant in terms of writing. He's going to push Wordsworth to keep writing and challenge him to write different times to write different types of poems such as in a more epic style. For most of the summer of 1797 they're going to be working towards lyrical ballads. Their goal is to sort of recreate the ballad form. Wordsworth is going to contribute a bunch of different poems to lyrical ballads and Coleridge is basically just going to contribute Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, which is the longest poem in lyrical ballads. So even though Wordsworth gave more poems, both contribute the same amount of space to the work. Initially, lyrical ballads doesn't get great reviews. In Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, which was Coleridge's main contribution to the piece, gets the worst criticism, which causes a bit of a falling out between Wordsworth and Coleridge. Wordsworth had never been a huge fan of rhyme, and Coleridge felt like his friend could have backed him up a bit more. While they're working on lyrical ballads in the fall of 1797, Coleridge also writes what some people think is his most famous poem, Kubla Khan. The story goes that in the fall of 1797, Coleridge takes a crap ton of opium and starts writing this poem. But in the middle of writing the poem, there's a knock on the door and Coleridge puts his pen aside and gets up and opens the door and it's this guy from Porlock who wanted to talk to him. And by the time the conversation is done and Coleridge goes back to finish the poem, he's just 
unable to finish it. So Kublai Khan is never finished. It's unclear if the story of the visitor from Porlock is true or if Coolidge just had a really bad writer's block and that's why he never finished it. Either way, Kublai Khan, the poem, is never finished, but it is one of Coleridge's most famous poems. Around this time period, he also starts working on this longer poem called Christabel, but like Kublai Khan, it's never finished. Coleridge wants to put it in the second edition of Lyrical Ballads, but Wordsworth is like, yeah, maybe you shouldn't put it in because it's not finished, and Coleridge freaks out. He's worried that Wordsworth is telling him not to put the incomplete Christabel into Lyrical Ballads because it's not a good poem and because he's not a good poet. Yet again, we're starting to see a bit of a schism between the two friends. And the schism is even worse because this new edition of Lyrical Ballads is going to include a preface. And this preface, which is solely by William Wordsworth, is about why they're writing Lyrical Ballads and what they think poetry should be. And Coleridge is kind of cheesed off that he was not included in the writing of this preface. But... Things aren't all bad for Coleridge, because by the end of 1797, he's managed to befriend this guy, Josiah Wedgwood. And Josiah Wedgwood has quite a bit of money, because he's the son of this famous potter. So Josiah Wedgwood starts giving Coleridge an annual allowance to write, as long as Coleridge doesn't go around preaching his radical political ideas. And Coleridge isn't an idiot. He recognizes that money is important because we live in a capitalist society, so he agrees to stay quiet about politics and take the damn money. Thanks to Wedgwood's allowance, in 1797, Coleridge is able to go to Germany, and he goes with William and Dorothy Wordsworth. This trip causes yet another split between the Wordsworths and Coleridge. Thanks to the allowance from Wedgwood, Coleridge is able to afford really nice lodgings, while the Wordsworths don't have a wealthy patron, and they have to stay in, frankly, shitty inns. So the two groups are going to split up and Coleridge is going to have a great time in Germany. He's going to get super into Kant. He's just going to love the trip. Whereas the Wordsworths are going to get sick. They don't speak the language and pretty quickly they're going to be homesick and want to go back to England. Whereas Coleridge is like, what's wrong with you, lamos? Why don't you want to take in the culture? And they're like, I don't know, maybe because we're sleeping in flea infested beds, Samuel, you lunatic. But by 1800, all three of them are back in England. Coleridge moves his family so that they live closer to the Wordsworths in the Lake District. And once he's in the Lake District with his wife and son, he meets William Wordsworth's future sister-in-law, Sarah Hutchinson, and falls head over heels in love with her, which I'm sure Coleridge's wife, Sarah Fricker, was just thrilled about. Once Coleridge falls in love with Sarah Hutchinson, the relationship, both with his wife and with William Wordsworth, is going to get pretty bad. Let's start with his relationship with William Wordsworth. Once Coleridge is in love with Sarah Hutchinson, he's going to spend a lot of time hanging out at the Wordsworth home. And it turns out that Samuel Coleridge is a terrible house guest. 
Number one, he won't eat salt. And in the early 1800s, salt is on basically everything because that's the only way to ensure that you don't die from rotten meat. And number two, he's taking a ton of opium at this point in time. So he's constantly high on drugs, really addicted, and just not that fun to be around. His relationship with his wife is also not going super well. He's basically flat out ignoring her and his children for his writing and for Sarah Hutchinson and Sarah Fricker's like, well, fuck you too, Samuel. In 1804, Samuel Coleridge decides that England just isn't doing it for him anymore, and he goes to Malta, where somehow he gets appointed to be the acting public secretary, and I'm really not sure who decided to do this and why they thought it would be a good idea but somehow Coleridge manages to do a great job, probably because he was just the acting public secretary and didn't have to do all that much. After spending some time in Malta, he then goes down to Italy and Sicily. He chooses Italy as his next destination because he thinks the weather will make him less sick and will help him not use opium as much because we're at that point where his addiction is really hurting his writing. Spoiler alert, the weather doesn't really help with his illness, and it's also not going to cure his addiction. By 1808, he returns back to England, and by now, his wife, Sarah Fricker, who honestly deserved better, is over the entire relationship, and the two separate. In 1809, Coleridge moves back to the Lake District and decides to return to past activities, by which I mean he decides to start another newspaper. This newspaper is called The Friend, and the big takeaway that Coleridge had gotten from his first newspaper venture, The Watchman, is that he shouldn't do a newspaper with other people's help. With The Friend, he's going to write, publish, and edit it all on his own. Spoiler alert, The Friend is going to fail. It only publishes 25 issues because it turns out Coleridge is a terrible businessman and he's kind of rambly in his writing, especially when he doesn't have an outside editor. Even though The Friend is not a critical or commercial success, it is going to influence later philosophers, especially one John Stuart Mill. By about 1809-1810, the whole opium thing is taking a real toll on Coleridge's health. It's making him act really weird. It's caused a massive falling out, both with his wife and with William Wordsworth. Basically, by this point, he and Wordsworth aren't speaking to each other anymore. Their relationship sort of hits a nadir. In 1813, when Wordsworth moves after the death of his children and Coleridge refuses to see him anymore, he's not doing great. He's constipated all the time because it turns out opium will do that to you if you live in the United States. That's why you see so many commercials for drugs that help ease constipation. It's all part of that opioid crisis that we're living through right now. Thank you, American Health Care System. So yeah, he's losing money, he's dealing with addiction, it's just not going great. 
However, in 1810, Coleridge does manage to slightly turn things around a little bit, and he starts giving a series of lectures about literature. Yes, these lectures are not always super clear because he is high on opium as he's writing and delivering the lectures, but people listen to them. They're influential. They're popular. And the most famous of these lectures is one he gives in 1812 about Hamlet. It's because of this 1812 lecture on Hamlet that people start seeing Hamlet as a genuine masterpiece for the first time. So if you had to read Hamlet in high school and you absolutely hated it, you can thank Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Thanks to the success of these lectures, Coleridge is asked to translate the works of Goethe into English, and he dives into this project for about six weeks, and then he gives up on it. It's unclear if the translation that he had started exists or not. It may have been lost to the sands of time. After a few years of getting his shit together, Coleridge, yet again, is at a low point. In 1816, he moves into the home of a physician, James Gilman, who says he can help Coleridge with the whole opium addiction thing. And it turns out Gilman is right. He does help Coleridge, for the most part, kick the opium habit. And Coleridge is going to live with Gilman for the rest of his life. While living with Gilman, he's going to keep writing. He's not really going to write poetry anymore. Most of his writing at this point is going to be literary criticism and essays, especially Biographia Literia. He takes a small break from living with Gilman in 1828, when he and Wordsworth manage to quasi-reconcile. The two take a trip to Germany and the Netherlands with Wordsworth's favorite child, his daughter Dora, and the trip goes pretty well. Yes, Wordsworth says that Coleridge was kind of irritating and rambling, but they didn't get into many massive fights. Coleridge comes back to England and spends the next few years living in the Gilman home. Coleridge ends up dying of heart failure and a lung disorder on July 25th, 1834, at the age of 61. He's buried in Highgate, London, right across the street from a house that Kate Moss owns, which seems pretty appropriate for him. So now that we've finished the life of Samuel Taylor Coleridge, let's do a quick little recap for those study guide fans who prefer bullet points to a full lecture. Samuel Taylor Coleridge is the son of a school teacher and his wife. As a child, he's pretty sickly, pretty isolated. He's not really close to any of his siblings. He prefers reading and wandering to playing games. His father dies when he's eight, which really changes Samuel's life. He's sent to school at Christ's Hospital, which he hates. He isn't close to any of the boys, except for Tom Evans and Charles Lamb. And during his time at school, thanks to the whole being sick thing, the school doctors are going to get him hooked on opium, which is always a great idea. The only good thing that comes out of going to school is he falls in love with his friend Tom's sister, Mary. After leaving Christ's hospital, he's going to go to Cambridge. During Cambridge, he's going to do that clot that classic college thing of drinking a lot, taking a ton of drugs, hitting up prostitutes, and getting super in debt. 
Samuel drops out of Cambridge, briefly joins the army under a pseudonym, realizes he hates it, has to bribe his way out of the army, goes back to Cambridge, ends up graduating without really any prospects, befriends a fellow poet and radical Robert Southey, who will be famous in his own right and will one day be Poet Laureate of England. The two attempt to start their own utopian society known as Pantocracy that completely fails, but the two do manage to marry sisters, although they do fall out in the end. And once Samuel is married, he befriends the son of a rich banker, gets some money, moves to the countryside, and starts writing. Once he's in the countryside, he becomes BFFs with William Wordsworth. The two inspire each other, write a ton of poetry, which eventually becomes lyrical ballads, which is basically the piece of writing that puts forth what romantic poetry should be. However, due to Samuel's opium habit and feeling slighted by William Wordsworth, the two will eventually fall out due to the opium habit and general ill health. Samuel will leave England in the early 1800s. He won't come back until 1808, by which point he and his wife have separated. After a few years of not-so-great health or life choices, as well as an attempt to start a newspaper which fails, Samuel sees a bump in fame after giving a series of really well-regarded lectures on literature. He manages to kick the opium habit, reconcile with William Wordsworth, before dying at the age of 61 in 1834 of heart failure and lung disorder brought on by his opium addiction. Not too shabby for the life of an 18th and 19th century poet. You go, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. So now let's talk a little bit about his writing and some of the big themes we can see in it. Like so many of the romantic poets, Samuel Coleridge started writing at an early age. His earliest poems were written to his siblings while he was at Christ's Hospital, and he continued writing in college. He won awards for his poetry in college, and most of his early poems are much more classical and traditional than the poems he's famous for. He really started writing more romantic poems during his friendship with Robert Southey, one of his first infamous poems is The Fall of Robespierre, which was so political and so radical that it could not be published, but it also is the first time that Coleridge is really talking about nature and politics in his poetry. Between 1794 and 1795, Coleridge wrote a series of political poems called Sonnets on Eminent Characters, which he used to praise his political heroes and criticize people who he politically disagreed with, like Edmund Burke and William Pitt. While they are different than some of the poems he's more famous for, I really like sonnets on, on eminent characters because I think they show his humor and they are different than the poems he's known for, so they are really interesting. Coleridge is most famous for his poems Kublai Khan in Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. He worked on Kublai Khan in 1797. There's a famous story that he started writing it, got interrupted, and could never finish it. It's unclear if that actually happened. That doesn't really matter. The poem describes a 
paradise created by the Mongol leader Kublai Khan and is famous for how dreamy it is and for how much time Coleridge spends describing these amazing, fantastical, natural images. As a result, it's one of his most famous poems and is seen as a great example of romanticism. He also is most famous for his long poem, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, which was his main contribution to the work Lyrical Ballads. It tells the story of a sailor who is cursed for killing an albatross. It's full of repetition and supernatural ideas, and nowadays is most famous for the idea of having an albatross around one's neck and the lines, water, water everywhere, and all the boards did drink, water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. However, when it was first published, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner was not well received. It was criticized for being weird, for being written in this difficult to read dialect, but nowadays it's pretty famous, although to be honest, not that many people read it in full. Coleridge also wrote some incomplete poems, the most famous of which is probably his long incomplete poem, Christabel, which William Wordsworth absolutely hated. Even though it was never finished, it's very gothic in tone, and it really influenced later writers like Edgar Allan Poe. In addition to these poems, Coleridge is really famous for a series of eight poems known as the Conversation Poems. These poems are not grouped together within his lifetime. He did not write them together as a single group. They became known as the Conversation Poems after his death because they're all about similar experiences with nature and poetry and they all have a similar conversational style. The conversation poems are Dejection and Ode, The Aeolian Harp, Fears and Solitude, Frost at Midnight, The Nightingale, Reflections on Having Left a Place of Retirement, This Lime Tree Bower My Prison, and To William Wordsworth. In addition to poems, Coleridge also wrote two newspapers, Watchman and The Friend. The Watchman only lasted two months or 10 issues, and The Friend only lasted 25 issues because, as it turned out, Coleridge was not exactly a great businessman and wasn't great at keeping a newspaper afloat. And then finally, later on in life, once he had kicked the opium habit, Coleridge got into more literary criticism with Biographia Literia, which is this mix of like autobiography and critical essays. He meant it to explain his poetic process, but there are also a lot of tangents about Kant and German philosophers and pushback against Wordsworth ideas of diction and poetry, and it's really interesting. And outside of Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner and Kublai Khan, it's probably the piece of writing that Coleridge is the most famous for. So, because this is one of my romantic writer episodes, I'm going to close out the episode by reading a poem by Coleridge. I'm not doing a section from Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner or Kublai Khan because both of them are way too long, and honestly, I don't really care for either of them that much. Instead, I'm reading a poem by Coleridge called The Sigh. 
It's from 1794, so it's one of his earlier poems. It was written for his then love interest, Mary Evans, and I really enjoy it because of the strength of emotion and imagination that you can see within it. When youth his fairy reign began, ere sorrow had proclaimed me man, while peace the present hour beguiled, and all the lovely prospects mild, then Mary mid my lightsome glee, I heaved the painless sigh for thee. And when along the waves of woe, my harassed heart was doomed to know, the frantic burst of outrage ken, and the slow pang that gnaws unseen, then shipwrecked on life's stormy sea, I heaved an anguished sigh for thee. But soon reflection's power impressed, a stiller sadness on my breast, and sickly hope with waning eye, was well content to droop and die. I yielded to stern decree, yet heaved a languid sigh for thee, and though in distant climes to roam, a wanderer from my native home, I fain would soothe the sense of care, and lull to sleep the joys that were, thy image may not banished be, still merry, still I sigh for thee. So, that's Samuel Coleridge. For my research on Coleridge, I used Norman Freeman's 1971 book, Coleridge, the Damaged Archangel, the L.A. Richards Portable Coleridge, and the introductory essay on his life, Adam Adam Sisman's 2007 book, The Friendship, Wordsworth and Coleridge, and the collection Samuel Taylor Coleridge that was edited by Harold Bloom and reissued in 2010. For a complete list of sources, as well as some fun images, you can visit the website at sadgirlstudyguides.com. Next episode is going to be about the oso-scandalous Lord Byron. I cannot wait. He's so much fun. Until then, as always, if you have questions, comments, or concerns, you can email the podcast at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. You can reach me at Twitter at sadgirlstudypod. If you want to see some really dank memes, you can check out the Instagram at sadgirlstudy. If you want to support the podcast financially, I'd really appreciate it. We have a Patreon at at patreon.com slash sadgirlstudyguides. For $5 a month, you get access to the really fun bi-monthly tangent cast where I talk about people, places, or things that don't quite fit into the broader episodes. The next tangent cast is going to be about Coleridge's friend, Mary Lamb, and her murdery ways. And as always, the best way to help the podcast grow is to tell a friend or subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. If you want to see us on a different podcatcher, let me know, and I'll do my best to make that happen. And please let me know how I'm doing. Rate and review, or else I'll be sad. Thank you.